Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? (laughs) Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. Respecto, respecto, which is, of course, Galician for Achtung, Achtung. How have they ended up with respect? Anyway, let's keep moving. That's almost <laughs> a full house of Spanish languages, I think. James, now, um, you interviewed John McManus recently in Normandy, um, having just seen the Bayer Tapestry, which yes. prompted an interesting question. In fact, read that podcast was, was very, very interesting because we had a little sprinkle of James Gavin, didn't we? Little yeah, bit of James, a little bit of Jimmy little, Gavin. A little bit of Jimmy Gavin there. Yeah, and we've also discovered, haven't we, that um, not only did he uh, have his way with Martha Gellhorn, which I did know about, I didn't know about Marlena Daitrich. I know, yeah. Jimmy, jumping Jimmy. As it jumping were. Jim. <laughs> but, um, I mean, there was a very funny moment where John went, with respect to RG. About, about, about <laughs> RG Pullison's... Yeah, I still, I still, even though he's a Jim Gavin super fan, John McManus, even though he was pretty... I st- it's, His joint favourite general of all time. That's exactly what he said. I, st- I still don't know why he didn't take the bridge on D-Day of Market Garden. Still doesn't make, still don't make no sense well, to I'm, me. Well, I'm, of course, I'm revisiting Jim Gavin with um, with Sisley. I'm doing his work on Sisley yeah, at the moment. Yeah. And so he's very much to the fore in that. Mm. Superstar general, though. Anyway, yes. Um, so you saw the the Bayer Tapestry, and um, uh, I re- if anyone, if you if you ever find yourself in Bayer, which is a funny little town, I recommend it. It's um, oh, it's amazing. It's I was completely, blown it's away. completely amazing. Isn't it it? Is I remember going brilliant. to see it when I was when I was like I must have been six with or yeah. eight or something with my grandparents, 
and then going again about 10 years ago and it the the facility it being like this odd spooky memory because they haven't end updated the place at all it's exactly the same but the t- tapestry is incredible yeah isn't it? they have now and the the place you see it, it's all kind of you know super lit and exactly really oh, in a way good. that's not going to kind of sort of harm the fibers and all this kind of stuff it's brilliant oh that's good excellent but what was really good was the commentator yeah <laughs> yes yes it's all it's all and then king harold you know yeah, with, with with sort of um uh, and pipes and, and stuff it's yeah. absolutely brilliant <laughs> right but that threw up a question from one of our listeners man of steel who says um hi guys loving the podcast a quick question. Considering that the Nazis liked to grab stuff and send it home, it's one way of putting it, what happened to the Bayer tapestry during the war? Did they just leave it alone or was it hidden? Um, well, it was hidden to start off with. They put it in the basement of some hotel in Bayer, but it was right. then found by the Germans. And, of course, they did half-inch it because that's what Germans always do. And in the did. war, in the war, did. in yeah. the oh, war, God, in the war, okay, <laughs> Nazi Germans, yeah, yeah. Nazis did. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> You can't say anything anymore, can you? (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, back in the war, the Nazis did steal it, and I think they they sent it to somewhere like Alsace or something to start off with. But anyway, it ends up in the Louvre from the middle of the war. It's in the Louvre, and um, von Choltitz, the the Nazi who famously saves Paris from Hitler's blow-it-all-up order, one of the reasons he says he does is because he doesn't want to destroy the bio-tapestry as he's captured by the British. Right, right. <laughs> but anyway, so it then stays in, in the Louvre for a bit um, before being returned to by uh, quite a bit of time after the war, I think. Uh, yeah, and I think, I think it, it stays in the Louvre for a while. It's come here once, hasn't it? Has it come it's to coming, it's coming, it's coming. 2023. Right, wow. President Excellent. Macron is, is lending it to us. Very sweet of him. Okay, well, it, I mean, he'll have to get it through customs, won't he? That's the only thing. Yeah. Big old tariff. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Can't just say that here, mate. <laughs> <laughs> Might not, never get it back again. All right, okay. So another fascinating bit of correspondence from The Smith on Twitter, who points us in the direction of the Battle of Bamber Bridge. Now, um, if you don't know about this, I, and I didn't, and uh, was, was stumbled onto it by an excellent correspondent of ours on Twitter, The Smith, um, the Battle of Bamber, Bamber Bridge is uh, it's a small village outside Preston Bamber Bridge, and... This what there was a race riot in 1943 in, um, in the summer of 1943 in Detroit in June of 1943, and so what you get then in Lancashire on the June the 24th um, is a sort of race race convulsion within the U.S. military mm. um, on, on the back of what's happened in on Detroit. the back of what's happened in Detroit, Detroit, and the also reports. on the and on the back of basically how the American army's been handling its black soldiers yeah. and how. What it it doesn't trust them with combat jobs, so they tend to be driving lorries, they tend to be doing supply, they tend to be doing stuff like that because the American army essentially has a has a race problem, yeah. a race issue, and and also because it's like a because it's racially segregated, one hundred fifteen eleventh. I don't know how you'd say that. It's got to be fifteen eleventh. Fifteen eleventh quartermaster truck regiment. So they're basically supplies people, and those kind of places that officers who weren't much good would get put in them and all that sort of thing. So you've got. You've basically they're not being they're not being treated respectfully because they're not allowed to be combat soldiers. They're not being treated the same as everyone else. Not being trusted the same as other black soldiers, and they're being they're not being led well. Yeah. And you end up with this situation where a number of black American soldiers are having a drink in Ye Old Hob Inn in Bamber Bridge, and some white American military policemen turn up and try to um, arrest some of the black men. And there's obviously argument and controversy about 
about who started it. Yeah. But what had happened is the village had been told that it um, should bar black men from certain um, uh, pubs. Yeah. And the locals refused to go along with the race bar that the American army was insisting on. Yeah. Um, and in fact, put signs up saying only black American servicemen allowed in these pubs. So feeding it, I mean, helpfully feeding into the tension, but it escalates and they end up with a, they end up with a riot. Well, in fact, black soldiers, well, no, no, going to the armory, taking rifles for themselves and taking pot shots at MPs and an actual um, standoff with weapons. One soldier killed. And interestingly, that you, you get you get the mutinies of the people people are people are punished for mutiny and the related crimes and all that sort of thing, but but actually the hammer comes down on the officers who've let this happen, the racist attitudes in the American army. The American army goes, ah, there's clearly a problem, a real problem here, and we need to do something about it, mm. which is. I think really, really interesting. I mean, well, John McManus was really interesting about this. Yeah, um, yeah. when I talked to him in Bayer, he was he was fascinating. I mean, just there's a whole host of stuff that I hadn't thought about. But how it, you know, he was he was saying that what happened in the 1960s was absolutely sort of presaged by what happened in in the Second World War. Yeah, of course, there was the 92nd Buffalo Division in in Italy, North, Northern Italy. And, and what's really interesting about that is when that's formed, you know, the first commanding general is a Southern white. Um, landowner, yeah, who is the commanding general? I mean, you know, who thinks that's a good idea? Uh, and, and all the officers well, maybe, to start off with are all white. And well, mostly maybe all someone, southern. maybe someone who thinks that a southern gent knows how to get black people to do what you want them to do. Yeah, but you, you, you have you to remember. I mean, in 1934, there was a public lynching which was attended by 20,000 people in Florida. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's not that long ago. No. Um, it's amazing, really. Yeah. But anyway, I mean, so they don't perform terribly well, but they get, you know, like all these things, they, 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 they get better. And what they realise is actually, it's not a question about having black divisions. It's about having good people. Well, it's, it's, well. it's, about, it's about having, you, you put, you integrate people. You yeah. know, and you, you lead don't them, have black you divisions, them, you, you have black and white and, divisions. And you lead them well and you motivate them. and All, all those all sort of things. And, and, and it's the same with the Tuskegee Airmen. Yeah. They, don't, they don't have a white fighter group. They don't have a fighter group of which some black yeah. um, airmen are sent. They have... A black fighter group, but then you get into yeah, but then you get into this thing where, where then of course, black soldiers run into the Germans and the SS in particular, and you've you, you've you know there's an incident in the Battle of the Bulge where um, African American artillerymen from an African I mean the, the units actually called one of the units is actually called 969th Field brackets African American artillery battalion. I mean, they're not only they're racially segregated, they're advertising it. Yeah. Um, uh, but some some guys from the 333rd who are like really who are a really successful regiment and who fire 1500 rounds in a 24 hour period. It's, this is all in by the way. This is all Peter Caddick Adams, Adams' book about the Battle of Bulge, which I'm, I'm reading like mad all the million words of it. Um, but but they run into the SS and there's 11 black GIs artillerymen who were murdered by the SS. You know, taken off and bayoneted or something, so you know. Yeah. So that so not only are you uh, is the army is the American army got this race problem that it really can't kind of um, quite deal with at the time. Trying to process at the time, it's fighting a complete and implacably racist enemy. I mean, yeah. it, it, you know, being being a you get the feeling that being a black GI in the, in the American army is you're between you argue between a rock and a hard place. It's, yeah. And actually, the, I mean the. the I mean, the, the Germans are not good with 
with, with, um, no. with ethnic minorities. No, uh, which brings us interestingly. So we, uh, well, they're not ethnic minorities. We're, 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 eth- eth- different ethnicities. Other races. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. Uh, yeah. So we have a letter from Stephen Parks. Um, uh, uh, well, it's an email. Um, this can't be a tweet. It's too long. Um, Dear James and Al, I finally got around to checking out your um, We Have Ways of Making You podcast, and I'm now binging it. Compulsive listening, guys. Keep up the excellent work. I, I have to say, um, several people have told me that they've been binging it. And the idea of spending, like, essentially an entire day listening to you and me talk about this. I mean, that makes my blood run cold, but, if, but you know, whatever floats, great. Your, whatever floats your boat, Stephen. Thank you um, very much. <laughs> as you encourage your listeners to ask questions, I'm wondering if this one's been covered yet, or um, I guess if it has, I will come across the answer in one of the dozen or so podcasts I'm yet to catch up with. But if not, here goes. No, and we haven't touched on this. Given that the Nazi ideology was founded on racism, or racialism actually, as it called itself at the time, uh, how were captured Allied personnel from black and ethnic minorities treated by all branches of the Wehrmacht? This with particular um, regard to American GIs, especially those of Jewish and African-American heritage, while also focusing on ethnic minorities in the British Empire and Commonwealth forces. This question acknowledges the abominable treatment of POWs of Soviet forces, although such treatment is very much on the record, hence the focus of the question on the Western Allies. I'm assuming that regular Wehrmacht forces may have treated BAME personnel differently than those captured by SS units. And then he goes, now, so, so, and we've kind of, we're kind of touching on that, or we've touched on that already. Yep. Incidentally, and this is very interesting, I should add that my mother was German by birth and grew up in the Breslau area, which is now in Poland, Western Poland, Wroclaw. Her family fled to the West in January 1945 and ended up in the small town of Bad Piermont near Hamlin. She always mentioned, being age seven by then, how the school children were warned by Nazi propaganda, increasingly desperate in the face of the advancing Allied forces, that black GIs ate children. Crikey. I, I would like to emphasise that she spent her adult life as a committed anti-racist. I look forward to hearing your answer sometime soon, if this indeed hasn't been covered already. Best wishes, Stephen Parks. Well, we haven't covered it, Stephen. I mean, we're, I mean, we're touching on it now, prompted by talking to John last week and... Yep. Then, and, and, and and an actual, and then this question from the Smith about this this mutiny, this incident. I mean, it's it's really really interesting because the it is really interesting. And actually, the, the whole thing about the eating babies thing is 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 fascinating because I was in Sicily last week and I was talking to um, a veteran, um, a, a civilian who had witnessed the Americans landing at Jella, and obviously after after the um, after the counterattack on the on the second day by by the Germans and the Italians. The area of security, it, it continued throughout the campaign to be a major kind of beach from which supplies were processed. Yeah. And so in came the black troops and they were um, doing a lot of the supplies. And the lady I was talking to said that she remembers seeing a black man for the first time, an American GI, you know, who was service troops, um, coming up the road with some supplies. And her mother pulled her in from the, um, from the window and said, don't, don't look at him because he'll come and eat you. Oh, Christ. I mean, yeah. I, I mean, I nearly fell off my chair. But it is, I mean, it's, so it's, it's the same again, story. it's one of the sort of fundament, fundamental ironies, you know, in the Second World War abounds with them, is that, you know, that to, to defeat to defeat the, the Nazi racist imperium, yep. you know, we hadn't, the Allied side hadn't necessarily got its house in order in the first place um, uh, on those issues. I mean, you know, it's interesting that Stephen asked about Jewish soldiers, because after when we were at Arnhem, one of the things, I mean, when we were at Arnhem, Back in September, there were so many things we didn't talk about, and, and and I came away from that experience thinking, God, we barely got started. But but lots and lots of lots and lots of Jewish soldiers in yep. in Airborne who who tended to take uh, you know who take false names and conceal who they were, but but they were always they were terribly worried about getting caught because um, uh, you know they, they were 
German Jews principally, and very, yeah. very, very nervous of being caught and what the SS might do to them. So, I mean, the, the, the race is the r- r- race is the sort of it's there as a massive factor. And then, of yeah. course, and then of course in the in the Far East, you know, Indian soldiers and. Uh, well, yeah, but also lots of Indian soldiers captured in in North Africa, of course, yeah. and, and indeed in Italy, and were prisoners of um, both the both the Italians and the Germans, and they were treated really badly. And actually, it's all quite timely. It's 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 quite serendipitous because I've, it, there's there's a magazine that um, the BBC History does called World Histories, which is really good. Um, and literally, just two days ago, I was reading a piece by Daya Gupta. Uh, who's an Indian academic, and she was writing about exactly this. You know, everyone sort of talks about prisoners of war and stuff, but no one kind of makes any mention of the fact that there were lots of Indians in this incredibly large, two million strong volunteer army. Um, and, and there were kind of, you know, a large number of, of Indian prisoners of war. Yeah. Uh, and actually, I've just got a quote here from, from this, this piece, and, and this is from an Indian soldier uh, writing between December 1942 and January 1943. Um, and he goes, Dear Mother, I cannot describe how atrociously we prisoners were treated by the Germans. We were given half a pint of water and one eight-ounce biscuit. This was all our daily meal. We were employed on odd jobs, fatigues from early morning till it was dark. We were beaten and kicked by the Germans. We have suffered such a lot, which, if I write down, will pierce your heart. But yeah, no, I mean, they were treated appallingly. And and, and that, again, is because of the inherent racism of the Nazi state. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Right, well then, it's time for a short break. Um, When we return, we'll be talking about the senior service. Our listeners are complaining that we spent too much time on land and in the air... This pod isn't soggy enough. Well, that's a fair point, and one I relish. <laughs> Hello there, We Have Ways listeners. It's Al here. I have a small favour to ask. Now, you may have noticed on social media in recent weeks that I've been campaigning on behalf of dkms.org.uk, trying to get people to register as blood stem cell donors. I'm doing this because my nephew Finley has been diagnosed with a very rare blood cancer. He needs a blood stem cell transplant. And so do thousands of other people. Now this is where you come in. All you have to do is go to dkms.org.uk, fill in the online form, and they'll send you a swab pack. Three swabs that you rub around inside your cheek so you can send back your data that can go on their register. And then maybe one day you'll be picked as a match and give someone a second chance and maybe even save their life. Thanks very much for listening. Welcome back. Uh, As I mentioned, uh, it has been suggested that we've been fixating on the poor bloody infantry and the Valiant Airborne. um, And some listeners want more seafaring chat. We're not salty enough, James. That's what it is. No, well, fair enough. Um, It's a fair point. It is a fair point, actually. And and, I mean, funnily enough, uh, uh, it's it's a lot to do with the way that, you you know, soldiers running around and hiding in foxholes is kind of a bit more relatable than... Well, also, you can't, you know, you're not going to go out to the Mid-Atlantic and sit in there and go, God, you know, this is where HX-77 got hammered, <laughs> are you? And sort of, you know, what have you got? Yeah, what sea. Ba- yeah, battlefield tour is exactly, <laughs> but, um, you know. So what have we got this morning? Well, we've got some more sea. Um, yeah, you yeah. might not know it, but we're actually at kind of longitude X and latitude Y. Yeah. I mean, it's just, you know, so people want to see things, don't they? And also, yeah. there haven't been that many films. There certainly hasn't been anything. I suppose it's been Dust Boot recently, hasn't there? Um, we've got Midway coming up, but um, there hasn't been a huge amount on it. No. Um, film-wise or TV-wise, really. Well, in which we serve... Yeah, that's a cracker. Cruel Sea, one of the greatest films, films of all time. Snorkers! Yeah. Right. Uh, Bloody murderer! So, that's a fantastic look by Jack Hawkins, uh, and he just sort of goes... 
and turns away, you know, Superb the, movie. the responsibility of command. Um, amazing right. stuff. So, but we, so we have all acted by people who've been in the war. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, all those films of the fifties were oh, yeah, just yeah. amazing. Right. So Chris Harding um, got in touch on Twitter to say, and he's not the only one. How about a mention for the senior service? The pod has been great, but very army heavy. Yep. What about the Navy's annihilation of the German destroyer force at Narvik, which was a big reason why Sea Lion didn't happen? Hashtag We Have Ways. Well, absolutely. Yeah. Um, if, if six to six German destroyers sent to the bottom in Narvik, yeah. absolutely annihilated. Yeah. Um, they did have some U-boats in there, but their torpedoes didn't work like they often didn't because yeah. they were a bit rubbish. Um, and, you know, Norway is always seen as a sort of terrible black mark for the Allies, particularly the British, but also the French, of course. Um, on land, unquestionably, it's, it, it's, it's a loss. Um, but at sea, it's, a, it's an undoubted triumph for the Royal Navy. And... Kriegsman, he never recovers. And, and it never recovers. And let's not forget that, that, that you know, we, we now know, what we now know about the Battle of Britain is that lurking in the background throughout the entire thing is the fact that the, there's a, the, the Royal Navy is enormous. Yes. Um, well, and it's also bolstered by Harry Tate's Navy, which yeah. is a naval auxiliary yeah, yeah. service, yeah. which but, but, is all these fishermen, of which yeah. there are legion numbers. Yeah. And all their trawlers have been given a couple of cannons on the sort of stamped onto the deck. Um, and, and, and some very fine binoculars and off they go and they're, they're kind of on anti-invasion watch and they're mine sweeping yeah. and they're laying mines yeah. and, and they're doing all sorts of stuff and they're, they're you know lots of hardy you know seafaring types um, the home fleet commanded by Admiral Forbes he just says this is insane we don't need to all be in the southeast of England because there's no way we're not going to know about an invasion 24 hours beforehand so you know and all our ships can get from around that we should be protecting our convoys and being yeah. out on the west coast and all the rest of it um, but they're not and he loses that particular battle and, and they're all kept down there and you know you're absolutely right you know people always talk about the few you know the fighter command being the kind of the, you know the last defence against the Nazi hordes and all the rest of it they're not they're the first line of defence yeah. they're not the last they're the first yeah uh, and there is absolutely and the, and the holds. Yeah, there is just not the remotest chance on earth of sea line ever being successful. I mean, just not a chance. Well, Even if I the R ever been destroyed, we don't like counterfactuals on this, but um, that that one shut down. But but the thing, because because after all, what's happening in what's happening in Norway is that. Um, is the Allied governments are going? Well, they're not Allied, really. I mean, the French and the British governments, because not really. Well, no, I mean, no, we're formal alliance. Yeah, but, yeah, but you can't call it the Allies with a capital A because that means you're going to win, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I think, I think they are. They're a formal alliance, whereas Britain and America aren't. Yeah, but you know what I mean. There's still I not do. The, there's still not the they're not allies. really. They're not like that. They're not the allies like the Avengers. You know, it's, it's no, like okay. it's like it's like they're not all singing from the same hymn sheet. It, exactly right, and um, and they're, because they they've got different political requirements. They haven't figured out their common aim and no. and all that sort of stuff. So they're not they're not you know the allies. TM. They're like. Um, well, because everyone always sort of goes, goes. You know, um, Chamberlain was forced to resign over 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 Norway, but actually it was Churchill's idea in the first place. You know. Um, well, it was Churchill's idea in September 1939 when it would have been quite a good idea. Yeah. Um, but by the time they actually agree on anything, it's April and it's a bad idea. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but, you know, exactly. Um, you know, things have changed. But I think the other thing, the other thing that's worth saying about it is, is that, you know, the Battle of the Atlantic is without question the most important theatre in the entire Second World War. Mm. You know, they're, they're absolutely indisputable because without the Atlantic... No, you will not None defeat Nazi Germany. None you can't do it because everything, whether it's coming from India, whether it's coming from Australia, whether yeah. it's coming from the far side of the Pacific, it's all got to get to Britain via the Atlantic. Yeah. And those sea lanes are really important. And what's really interesting about Britain is Britain realises right early on in the war that this is the case. 
that the, the Atlantic is the most important thing. So a huge amount of effort into its research and development of new scientific techniques and, and modern techniques for anti-U-boat um, and anti-shipping stuff that's going on, um, technology, is put into the Battle of the Atlantic. So one of the key inventions is the cavity magnetron, which is what reduces the yep. size of a radar from a massive 270-foot-high mast into something that you can put on a Wellington yep. or on a, frig, you know, on, a, on a destroyer or a Corvette. Yep. Um, and the Germans never invent this, and they never know that we've got it. But it, they also have vastly increased the efficiency of, of, of Huff Duff, you know, um, high-frequency direction finding and all mm. sorts of other techniques. And I think you can argue, and argue convincingly, that Britain gets to a point where it's not going to lose the Battle of the Atlantic by May 1941. No, so, I, a vote, so a vote doesn't actually win yeah, yeah. the whole Battle of the Atlantic. You know, the U-boats aren't defeated until May 1943, two years later. And, They're not going to lose and it. And could it, be, could it be argued that the reason that um, your infantryman in a, in a foxhole has a bolt-action rifle is because the money's being spent on, on those things you're talking about. The, yes. The, the brain and the effort and the, and the real cold, hard cash... Is being spent on sorting out on stuff that really matters, really high tech thing that matters. Whereas in fact, a, 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 rifle, a, a rifle, rifle like a Garand, you know, a, which is much more expensive than a Lee Enfield, it's just not worth spending the money on. But Lee Enfield's a really good. No, no, but but, but it's not anyway. Yeah, but the Garand, the M1 Garand, is the best rifle of the second. Well, because it's semi-automatic. Exactly, exactly. That's the that's the that's that's the point. Ding, I'm ding, 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 exactly. Ding. That's the exact point. So that's the yeah. that's exactly the but that's the point is that the, is that the British have gone well. You know what? There's, there's no, no point upgrading that bit of kit. That, that, that thing's role and that thing's function, we can leave them be. Yeah. But what we'll invent is things, that, is things that solve the problem to get those rifles that are being made in Canada yeah. to, the, to the UK. Yeah. And, and so, so very often this British kit discussion that people get kind of drawn into, or so the radios at Arnhem don't work, well, that's because the, the radios at Arnhem aren't as important as... As a, as, uh, as yeah, I think there is probably a bit of that going a, a on. A resource, a resource, you know, allocation of resources. You've got to make yep. these decisions, haven't you? Because we've talked about that with uniforms before. That the Allied uniforms are all they're all cheap and cheerful. Because um, if we can, they don't need to be expensive in flash. Exactly the point. But but I, I think generally speaking, um, and I don't think the Allies get credit enough for this is that their prioritisation of their assets is really good. Yeah. Of course, there are things when, retrospectively, you can say, well, they might have done it this a bit different or they might have done that. But overall, certainly when you compare to the Germans, um, you know, their allocation of resources is pretty much spot on. They focus on what they need to focus on. Right. So, but so, but so to drag us, because we've done this again, to drag us back to the original question, how big is the, the, the Kriegsmarine in April of 1940. Well, it's, it's languishing. And how really big is the Royal are. Navy? Oh, the, the Royal Navy is the largest navy in the world, you know, by a country mile. Uh, I mean, this is what makes the whole creation of a surface fleet, which is part of the Z plan, which is instigated in 1938, um, the German Z plan. Mm. It's, it's just such a weird in the, nonsensical in the, in, in the 30s, you have this shipbuilding ratio um, thing that's part of internet, that's like a yes. foreign policy arm wrestle and horse yes. trading that goes on. Well, you know, they're, we're, they're allowed... They can never have more than a third of the size of the Navy. Exactly. And they never get, they never get there, do they? No, not even close. No, no, not so, even so, close. So, so, so what they don't have is lots of shipyards making ships. What they don't have is lots of steel. What they don't have is lots of capacity for making vast, great battleships and aircraft carriers. So what do they do? They come up with the Z plan, which includes a, a naval construction project of aircraft carriers, huge battleships and all the rest of it. I mean, it makes no sense. You know, the only chance they have of defeating Britain really apart from halt orders aside that we've already talked about, is if they can win the Battle of the Atlantic. 
And, and what is absolutely abundantly clear in, in, is that in the OKW, the Oberkommando der Wehrmacht, which is the German general staff, there is no appreciation of this at all. Because if you read OKW War Diaries, a Kriegstag book, which has been, which is in print, you can see the, all the original minutes of everything, of all the meetings and all the rest of it, and the actual war diary, it's not on that high priority list. Even Warlemont, who is kind of a, part of the planning team, who, who wrote a post-war book, says in, I think, 1942, he says, you know, the Mediterranean is of equal importance with the, with the Atlantic. No, it isn't. No. Which is a whole decision about why they move U-boats out of the Atlantic into the Mediterranean. Yeah. It just isn't. It absolutely is not. And, and it is astonishing that these really quite well-educated, well-trained men don't get that. And that's because there isn't a naval tradition. Well, they, but also, they're they're but continentalist also, landlubbers. But, but also, but if, you're, if you're a bloke, if you're an army... I mean, this is inter-service stuff too, isn't it? If you're from the army, you don't want the money being spent on the navy. You, yes, you want, but if you, you are lovely, on the, if you, you want your lovely the, shiny tiger. Yes, with but the if you great are in the, on the combined services, German general staff, and your job is to win the war, it is your job to get a little bit no, beyond inter-service. Nine, rivalries. nine, here, Holland. Uh, I and, want more tigers. I want more tigers and panthers. Yeah. Um, but. Even so, the only chance they've got of winning is having a vast, a pretty large, sizable U-boat fleet of at least 300 U-boats in 1939, because you have to operate on the principle of thirds. So you have a third out at sea fighting ship, sinking ships, you have a third going back and forth from the battle zone, and you have another third working up, doing maintenance, all the rest of it. Now, that's always the way it's going to be. So if you've got a fleet of 300 U-boats, you're only going to have 100 in the Atlantic at any one time. What is amazing about 1940, when they do actually sink quite a lot, because a lot of the convoys aren't escorted because they're all oh, on anti Invasion watch yeah, yeah. Um, uh, is that there's never more than 14 U-boats in operation at one time in the entire Atlantic. And by January 1941, when things are getting quite critical because the Luftwaffe has just lost the Battle of Britain and it's all going pear-shaped, um, they only have six. And that is just not going to win you the war. Uh, and by May, of course, you've got the Bismarck has been sunk, one of two great battleships, yeah. um, along with the Tirpitz. Um, so that's out. Um, you've got um, three of your greatest aces, dead or prisoner, Kretschmer, Shepka and, and Preen. They've, yeah. um, Shepka and, and, and Preen are dead. Kretschmer's being captured. Um, you've lost the Enigma Naval codes. Yep. Um, you're not going to win from there. And, and at the same time, the Canadians are really starting to grow their own navy. They, they've gone from nothing to, to this in a very short yeah. period of time. Um, the, the, the gap, the air gap in the mid-Atlantic is getting less and less with every passing month. British allied technology is getting better and the U-boats are not getting better. They're, they're the same old submersibles. They're not even proper submarines. And German industry is having to churn out panzers and yep. panzers like mad because of the Russian front and, and churn out... Absolutely. Fight, fight and the, and the problem like is, is that the U-boat force in 1939 is only 3,000 strong. So your base is not very big when you want to do sudden enlargement. Yeah. If you've only got 3,000 men, that doesn't go very far when you want to suddenly when expand you, it to kind uh, of 300. Yeah, yeah spread the, the skills and all yeah. that. Yeah. So the annihilation of the German destroyer force at Narvik is, the, is, the, is, is, a big, is a big reason why Sea Line didn't happen. I mean, it really is. Although even if, even if those... But those ships hadn't been at the bottom of the sea in Norway. Even then, the Kriegsmarine wouldn't have... Sea Lion... I mean, Sea Lion's a no-go anyway. I mean, Well, I, I would change that. I would say um, Narvik is a very important reason why they don't win... They don't even come close to winning the Battle of the Atlantic. Yeah. There we go. 
And that, that is the most important theatre. Does that answer your question, Chris Harding? I think it does. <laughs> <laughs> is that enough Navy for you? God, dear. I mean, you know, I'm... It's all no, car- I mean, definitely can do more Navy. It's all khaki to me, James. I'm, I'm, I'm khaki through and through. Um, right, well, time to bid you all farewell. Just a reminder, we're currently operating on a twice-weekly schedule. Um, rather like the village my parents live in, in rural Buckinghamshire, where the bus to the nearby town comes on a Tuesday <laughs> and goes home on a Thursday. <laughs> you can't get to the supermarket from where they live, <laughs> unless you're prepared to state the nine-lane bus. <laughs> anyway, just a reminder, we're currently operating on a twice-weekly schedule with a regular Tuesday pod and then bonus episode on a Thursday some of the interviews James has carried out for us on the bonus pods have been enthralling and if you haven't been listening I'd thoroughly recommend you catch up and comb through a friend of mine a very very good friend of mine I lent him um, Zeno's The Cauldron because he's, ah. he's a big he's, he's a fiction man and he really likes hard boiled sort of thriller fiction yeah. he said well read this and I, he, he wrote back to me I'm like oh, dear god you know that's, whoa, that's stern meat and then wrote going which one's the Arnhem podcast i said well there's nine so we've got him we've got him and he's like he's like he's like a fly trapped in in amber you know <laughs> we've got him <laughs> so Good catch work. up if you can um yeah and we're also gonna um we're, we're planning a major campaign around the battle of the bulge a bit like the one we did for arnhem we did yep. nine days of that yeah are, are we doing two weeks worth or maybe three, not three, but anyway, a month we're, we're, a month of, a month of <laughs> battle of bulge. But anyway we're gonna go out to the battle of bulge in, in december we're gonna be we're gonna be kind of rubbing our hands together in the snow mm. Um, and, um, and shouting nuts at passers by. Nuts! Nuts! I never really understood that one, but... What does this mean? What is, what is nuts? Nuts! Is this positive? Is it, is it negative? Is it positive? It's anyway. Neg- it's negative, buddy. <laughs> That's the conversation. Yeah, but, but we're going to go, we're gonna go dropping, to Bastogne. It's brilliant when they're dropping them back. The guys have come under the white flag. He's dropping them back. He goes, what is this nuts? What does it mean? Is it positive? Is it negative? He says, it's, it's negative, pal. And then, he, and then he wished them luck and regrets ever wishing them luck. Yeah. The story on the collar for you. Yeah, yeah. Um, but also, you can't really say Bastogne unless you say an American accent. Bastogne. Bastogne. Yeah. Anyway, anyway so we're going to go to Bastogne. Very excited. And we're we're, we're going to go to some Vit, and we're going to we're yeah. going to go to Malmody yeah. and follow that legend that is Joachim Piper. And thermals. And actually, I've got a Bring guy's been in touch with me, a chap called Neil Thompson, who is clearly an expert on Joachim Piper. So he's going to give me the gen on Joachim Piper, which is good. good. Yeah, they're good. Looking uh, forward anyway, to that. We're going to keep you up to speed with our plans, um, but I can tell you they include the prospect of Al Murray and I being trapped in winter around Bastogne Forest. Yeah, lovely. Superb. Looking forward to that. Bye for now. Cheerio. Cheerio.